0: is a bloody disgusting podcast network
1: i kick ass for the lord
0: Royals and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in from Los Angeles, California. Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more with your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey,
1: I'm Trevor and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast episode 233. This time around, you're hanging out with writer, director, cinematographer, and producer, Mike Teston. And writer director, producer, and actor Matt Mercer. the time of release, their new film Dementia Part 2 is now in limited theaters and arriving on DVD and VOD June 1st. It's a proud presentation of bloody disgusting and dark star pictures. Hear the fascinating story of a brilliant, gore-soaked gross-out fest. This terrifying and hilarious film made on a dare in 30 days from script to screen and the challenges and awesomeness that ensued. Learn about how they did some of the most fun, practical effects of the year, get into their horror faves and influences, and their experience working closely with Joe Bigas on his phenomenal hyperkinetic nightmare, Bliss. Episode 233 is now playing. Get
2: out of my house! Miss Goldblum, it is me, Wendell.
3: How do you know my name?
1: Ness. Are you the owner of this house? No, that would be my mom,
3: Suzanne. How oh, do you get out of here?
0: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another thing. Crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy.
1: Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two prolific and inspiring creators, both directly involved in the production of modern genre classics. First off, a cinematographer who's worked on documentaries, including the Emmy winning Big History, People Magazine Investigates, and tons of shorts and features, among them Joe Begas' Stunning Bliss and VFW, two of the most unique looking films, maybe, of all time. As a director and writer going back to 2004's The Hunger Artist, his debut feature length being 2015's Dementia, docuseries Codes and Conspiracies, 10 Ways the World Will End and more, we welcome Mike Teston. Also here, a six-time award-winning writer, director, actor, producer with over 60 credits to his name, parts in an abundance of cool stuff, like Mickey Keating's Psychopaths, 2016's Beyond the Gates, Bliss, Eric England's Contracted, All the Creatures Were Stirring, Writing and Directing, A Handful of Shorts, the multiple festival award-winning Feeding times and the 2014 feature You or a Loved One. We welcome Matt Mercer. Every time you see one of these guys attached to a project, you know it's going to be something unique that will be an important part of the constant evolution of horror filmmaking while acknowledging and incorporating its legacy. Their newest title does just that. The two team up, co-writing, directing, and one of them starring in a new film from Dark Star Pictures and Bloody Disgusting called Dementia Part 2. In limited theaters now and arriving on DVD and VOD June 1st, it's amazing, It's gross, it's terrifying, and hilarious all in one. Mike Teston and Matt Mercer, everybody.
0: Holy shit, that's an intro. I can't live up to that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You guys, thank you so much for making the time to hang with us today. So to start off, Dementia 2 shows so much love for the best of the best, in our opinion, with a terrific yeah. new spins on it as well, right? The films we grew up with and made us addicted to the genre. I'm talking the work of Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson, just to name a few. So, tell us about the films you grew up with. We could start with Mike.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's in that realm in terms of the horror um, horror genre. My first experiences were uh, Nightmare on Elm Street its original run, which terrified me and at the drive-in with my parents. I was probably too young to see it. I think I was eight. But uh, yeah, that, Texas Chainsaw, Exorcist, all the standards for everybody, I guess. Amityville. And I think from there, I just went into, along with horror and kind of following the Friday 13th series and all that kind of stuff sort of ventured into back then into like the Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of uh actioners, Predator and then you know RoboCop and all that kind of ultra ultra violent stuff but stuff that was still handled with uh elements of humor I think and I think that's you know a lot of the things I I grabbed onto back then and I just remember being floored when I first saw Evil Dead 2 which was not in its theatrical run. I, I didn't discover it until uh, when it first came on VHS and my dad had rented it. And I went to bed before that came on. It sounded scary. Uh, I woke up and um, he's like, you have got to see this ridiculous movie. I rented," <laughs> And I was like, Oh, okay. So I turned it on as just you know, it's like three stooges and horror. It was, it was lovely. So, From there, I started really grabbing on to horror comedy stuff. And that's kind of where I found other Sam Raimi films and Peter Jackson and things like that. So that was my way through that.
3: Are you a fan of Shaun of the Dead?
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love Shaun
3: of the Dead. It's so good.
1: (laughs) All of Edgar Wright's work is, yeah, Yeah. yeah. And then how about you, Matt? What was your gateway into all this? my gateway was probably jaws and then and i was
2: 6 or 7 years old when i saw that but then i asked my mom what's the scariest movie you ever you've ever seen and i remember her saying halloween and when i watched that it was that changed my life that was the moment that changed my life halloween is the movie it's my favorite horror movie it's terrifying still holds up to this day and it's very relatable because it all takes place you know it's this supernatural you know, this force inside of this man killing people, and it takes place in a suburban everyday neighborhood. And I think it's terrifying. And that's what sent me down the rabbit hole. Much like Mike, uh, Evil Dead 2 was a seminal one, though. It was a big turning point because I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that you could combine horror and comedy in that way and watching that the camera techniques that Sam Raimi came up with like the Ramo cam and the Samo cam and Dutch zooms and I was like this is the craziest fucking thing I've ever seen and it just charges you up you know and so I think yeah when we went into this that was definitely a reference point as well as Peter Jackson uh, dead alive clearly in the Suzanne character you see you know there's a lot of that and uh yeah even things like i don't know the, the weird asides in movies like killer clowns from outer space i mean there's just so much i think the absurdity of those kinds of movies coupled with uh technique that's very vibrant and over the top that's really where we were going with this and so all those things influenced me too growing up yeah
1: i'm wondering if there's any like even to, to dissect it even further are there one or two specific moments that you might each have in the annals of horror cinema that has stayed with you or perhaps like when you saw it, it changed your life? Like one particular sequence or, or scene that you hmm. think about all the time. I would say for me, it's the uh, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre when
2: Sally is pushing Franklin through the the, the bush, the out Texas outback, <laughs> and it's pitch black, and they must have lit that with one light, you know, no one ta- just no one talks about Daniel Pearl's work on that movie and how s- crazy good it is. Everyone talks about how the verite of Texas Chainsaw right. its really controlled. It's yeah. a really controlled movie. And when she's pushing him through the woods in that wheelchair and Leatherface in an extremely long lens shot comes blasting out of the bushes. Yeah. To this day, I can't watch that and not jump. It still makes me jump. And I've seen that movie so many times. And, so that and just that.
4: Sorry, go
2: ahead. No, that's it. That's, that was a big moment. And the movie just is dripping with unease from the beginning to the end, from the flash frame stuff in the beginning with the photographs of the body, the grave robbing, to the very end. You never feel at ease watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's the one for me. And, that, and in particular, that moment that when Leatherface pops out of the woods. Oh, God.
4: I was just going to say that, uh, I mean, You know, going off of of Matt's story there that when you were talking about that long lens that compressed chase through the dark forest on 16 millimeter, I mean, it's just beautiful. It's so (laughs) frightening. It is so frightening and feels so real. It feels like you're watching a a documentary or something of a horrendous act. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrifying.
2: uh, It feels like he's he's right on top of her as he's chasing. He's just... Barreling, and he looks so huge behind. Yeah, uh, Marilyn Burns. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is a that's that's one that got me as a kid. And there was some schlock stuff too. Like I saw this movie I shouldn't have seen at a very young age called Ten to Midnight, the Charles Bronson, the the Jay Lee Thompson movie with Charles Bronson. And there's a scene, the killer. <laughs> it's about a serial killer who. Has to be naked to kill people, and there's a scene. It's so disturbing, and there's a scene where uh, the killer breaks into a house where all these women live, and uh, there's a woman cowering in the shower, and you see his silhouette in the um, in the frosted glass of the shower. I couldn't sleep for a week. That one. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> if, you, if we want to go in a B movie direction, that one really uh, that one really shook me as a way too young child. How
3: old were you when you saw it?
2: Oh my god I think I must have been again 8 7 or 8 I think 8 Yeah, yeah the thing yeah. was I would my mother my mother would introduce me to like classy horror and my parents were separated at the time so she I would watch classy horror movies with her she was trying to and she could tell I loved horror and she would show me good stuff my dad would just rent whatever he had no discernible uh what's a taste <laughs> so, you know my mom would be renting alien and my dad would rent uh william malone's creature you know that was, was so like, great the difference but uh yeah it was um i think my dad rented 10 to midnight and yeah i had to be eight
1: mike any other scenes that you got
4: in your head that
1: that stay with you
4: well it's funny it's like i, I think that day that my dad got um evil dead 2 and this has nothing to do with the uh, what you're talking about actually but i just i just remembered and that it's always been a funny story for me my dad also because you know he would come home with like um five movies for us to watch over the weekend and one of the <laughs> movies and he thought this was a horror movie and it, it was so hilarious he came home with an iron maiden live concert <laughs> <laughs> it just had you know iron maiden eddie it had that <laughs> Yeah. had him that on the cover and he was like, oh, this is going to be so scary. Dad, that's a concert film. <laughs> a metal band. You're not going to love it. But anyway, I think um, for me, again, going back to I probably Nightmare on Elm Street is still the thing because I just remember sitting in that car and watching those arms stretch across the alleyway. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the the knives scratching the, the uh Brick or sur- the alley surfaces or the knives on the um in the boiler room um it's just so terrifying and they did such a nice job of not showing too much of him in that intro with him building the, the gloves and stuff and that stayed with me for a long long time and i had Freddie appear in my dreams which is you know a frightening thing as a 10 year old <laughs> or whatever i was the movie came out in 83 right Yeah, I'd be nine. So that was one thing. And I think other things that really terrified me at that age, obviously Michael Myers, I saw Halloween shortly thereafter and Amityville horror when the babysitter gets, you know, stuck, trapped in that closet. That was always terrifying to me. And then I think in later years, the more recent thing that really kind of stuck with me, two things because I came to the film late, the, um, the guy at the end of uh, the vanishing with the lighter in the coffin, that is just <laughs> horrifying. And then the most recent thing, I guess, would probably be the piano wire foot amputation in uh, uh, Audition, which is just a visual that I, I can't shake. And I can't, I can't shake what that would feel like.
1: What was the turning point when you both went from being fans to creators? Where did that, where do you think that confidence came from and what did your gateway into that world look like?
4: (laughs) For me? I don't know. I I was in music first and that was kind of my, I didn't think about making films until a little bit later, right around the two thousands, the turn of the century. So before that I was mostly into music and that was my creative output. creative outlet i should say music guitar you know and just eating up anything that came that way and then um i think i just sort of realized that i always had this attraction to films and i think photography was my gateway into taking seriously any any idea of making a film i grew up in the midwest so it wasn't like i grew up around people making films no, and I I didn't know a single person who would make films. The only thing we had as a family was a VHS uh, giant camcorder, so we would make goofy things. And I think maybe that's part of where that sort of gateway happened as well. But yeah, through photography, I I ended up going to film school, and then through that, I think I I realized that it's something you can do for a living. Um and then uh then yeah i just somehow landed in this crowd of people who love making horror films and it's you know it's fantastic
2: i started as an actor and i went to acting school when i was a little kid i i i was interested in making films and i you know like mike was saying i made little films with our giant Home RCA camcorder. I remember seeing Alien Three in the theater, and you know how there's the POV of the alien uh, running on the ceiling. I would try to take the camcorder and do that with it, and realized it didn't <laughs> work. Um, it looked like crap. Uh, but um, yeah, I, st- I started as an actor and figured that could be the way into eventually getting making films. Um, and I also love acting. They're just different disciplines. All the jobs on films, but uh i think uh i was one of the only actors i knew that would target i would target horror auditions specifically when i moved to los angeles i wanted to be in horror movies and um one of the, the first one i got when i when i finally landed a, a lead in a horror film was a slasher movie called madison county and then uh the director of that eric england was making a movie called contracted and i and he needed another producer and i said well, maybe this is an opportunity to learn something. And I just, I said, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll come on board and do some of the physical producing of it, like, um, finding locations and wardrobe and just lining things up. And that was like crash course film school. And then I kind of just started making shorts and directing shorts. And, uh, and I, and it wasn't until I was about, 30 years old though that i started doing this because i think for a long time i did have a fear uh, probably like a fear of of failure you know i didn't i wasn't sure i was capable of doing it and it seemed like a, a lot of a lot of work the times i had been on set and so many it's so overwhelming because there's so many uh technical things you feel like you have to know but it's really not that it's really about surrounding yourself with the right people who know some of those things you certainly have to know Some things, um, like what kind of lens you want to choose, or whatever, but um, to make something look how you want it to look. But overall, uh, it's about choosing the right people to work with. So, anyway, straying from the point, yeah, that it wasn't until I was about thirty that I jumped behind the camera and and just went from there.
1: You know, going from a fan of these movies, was it harder or easier than you thought? Once you actually made the jump and started being in them and started taking part in them. It's, it's, it's
2: harder. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to put everything together. And it's, it's harder on that level than I initially think I thought it would be. But a lot of that can be your own hangups too. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the difficulty can come from you sort of putting barriers in front of yourself and making things more complicated than they actually are. I mean, really at the end of the day, if you have a script, you just break it down and you say, here's all the things I need. And here are the, people i need to make it now i just need to get those things and you just it can be a lot of work getting those things but it's all achievable you know so yeah i think it was a it was a bit harder um but by focusing on horror in particular because that's where my passion has always lain or lied lied lain. uh that's where i am that made it easier because you just want to do it you want to get it done and see if you can achieve these crazy beats and effects and all these wild things you know
1: oh and then you I get to it. explore all those things on dementia Two, which is yeah, yeah. which is <laughs> such a blast and leading on to that though talk about the very unique way that you guys got together to bring dementia Two to life and what about each other makes a partnership such a great one
4: yeah i mean jd Matt has an earlier version of the story where where JD approached him at uh, Fright Fest. But where I came into it, JD called me one day and said he had a um, had an idea. I think Matt maybe had initially uh, told him to go away. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so he called me and we met. Um, met for lunch and he's like okay well you know there's there's this Sin apocalypse festival coming up and i talked to josh goldblum and uh you know they're gonna they're gonna save a slot for us if you guys want to make a film and uh you can start writing as soon as they announce the uh the open slate and you'll screen on that day and it was you know five weeks from the day we were having lunch so i was like ah I don't know if that sounds great, <laughs> but, uh, maybe it could be fun. And then my, my first call is to Matt Matt's like, Ooh, yeah, I don't know about this, <laughs> but, uh, eventually, you know, I think for me, the turn was just that it could be just so loose. It could be such a, um, sort of a fail safe experiment. Right. I mean, Sure, the time compression is extremely difficult and the budget compression is extremely difficult. But at the same time, worst case scenario, whatever pile of garbage we, you know, (laughs) talked, it screens once and it's forgotten about it. Nobody cares. But for us, I think that me and Matt have made a few um, goofy shorts together and um, we have a lot of fun working together. And I like kind of pinning Matt against psychotic people. Uh, (laughs) So the idea of putting Matt, like just shooting a week and putting Matt against uh, this crazy old lady, watching that happen for four or five shoot days. And then, you know, just going through the whole process to me, it just sounded like a lot of fun. Um, And we could have the crew was just essentially me, Matt, Matt's mom, um, a sound person on a few of the days. And, you know, just go out, make each other laugh, you know, pay homage to these things that we love, Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson and Twilight Zone and Guy Madden, Tennessee Williams, all this <laughs> weird stuff to kind of bring together in one, one weird concoction and just kind of let it, let it fly, not worrying about if um, the whole thing adds up to just a failed experiment. I think that's kind of the, the charm of it is that we're not, you, I think you can tell that obviously we're not taking ourselves too seriously and that um, it's just, it just feels loose, I think.
1: Expanding on that, Matt, what do you think that the challenges of the budget and the time frame? what do you think it did to elevate the inventiveness and imagination that you were able to bring to it all?
2: Yeah. Well, because this was shot script to screen in five weeks, there were numerous challenges. Uh, and the biggest, you just can't approach it like you normal, like you would setting up a normal feature film. So the first, the we, we could, we had to start from scratch. This was part of the challenge that was presented to us by JD and Josh Goldblum, who runs the Apocalypse Festival, where we screened this, whatever we made. And um, we had, so we laid out a schedule that entailed writing it in three days, uh, three to five days. I think we jammed out the script and I think we had three or four ideas, but we kind of settled on single location, hapless ex con at first he was a salesman. Then he became a handyman. Uh, that seemed more appropriate because he could get into pipes and vents and find weird crap all over the house. Uh, and then, um, uh, Mike went away to shoot a commercial somewhere. We, but yeah, we were still, by the way, living our lives while shooting this and doing our day jobs. So Mike, Mike goes away to shoot a commercial and I, I prepped for a week, uh, getting together props and things like that. Um, and this coincided with a visit from my mom. She was visiting from North Carolina. So I roped her in. I was like, "Well, we're suddenly making a movie, so I roped her in <laughs> to be the de facto production designer." Suddenly, <laughs> so she started buying props. She found the, this weird squirrel. Oh, she found oh, that! Wow. Thing. <laughs> Wait, where is the squirrel now? I have it. It's right here. Oh, oh my my that's great. Yeah. We ended up just keeping, it. and there it is.
3: Aw Where the, the hell did she find that thing? Now. Oh my god! A
2: taxidermy shop in North Carolina, and because so in Los Angeles there are no taxidermy. Shot. And they There are a couple of taxidermy schools, but no one had anything. Um,
3: <laughs> like, I, like I wanted something that
2: looked like it was what's that?
3: That that sinister. I imagine. <laughs> no, <laughs>
2: like I wanted something that, like, a raccoon or a squirrel, like something um, that was just crappily taxidermied. And then she found this and sent a photo of it, and it had horns and fangs. And I went, "What the fuck? <laughs> yeah." Oh, I was, oh I was like, "What? I mean, that has to be it." So we, we got that.
3: Have you named him?
2: We just call him Squirrel. Oh. We really need to name it. <laughs>
3: yeah, I think so, too.
2: So I got off track. I always get off track. But basically, yeah, it was a week of prep. And then we shot for five. It was essentially five day production. And then the rest of the time, we, which was two and a half, three weeks left. You know, we just spent editing and jamming it out. Mm-hmm. The only difference between what we showed, what we showed at the festival had a temp score. We just couldn't. Get a composer to do music in that amount of time. So yeah. the biggest difference between what we showed at the festival and what exists now is we actually have a real score on it. We did get a composer, but he still had to do it quickly because we had another film festival coming up. We were going to show it at, so he did the score in I don't know two or three weeks.
1: Oh my god, and it's amazing. Yeah. This is David yeah. David Labovitch, right? That's yes, name? yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, incredible. Especially because the movie's so schizophrenic and the temp score I had put in. I mean, the movie, it just it was very uh, eclectic and needed it needed something eclectic and wildly different in each in each cue. And David rose to the challenge and just killed it. I mean, crazy, just crazy how how great it is. And
1: he's a one man, you know, band. So he did it all. Oh my God. Yeah. It sounds like, like yeah. the best of Richard Band's scores with full moon or yeah. something. It's fucking insane. And he hasn't oh, like David good, doesn't have point. like a ton of credits either. It's amazing. Mm. He should be he should be doing more stuff. It's so great. Right. Uh, right.
2: Know. Yeah. He hadn't done a feature and was champing at the bit to do it. And uh, you know, was was willing to do it for <laughs> very little money because we didn't have a lot of money, and also, you know, do it for, you know, sort of a back-end sort of deal. I mean, that's how you have to do it on these kinds of things. And he really rose to the challenge. And it is Richard Band is a really good touch point. It's very uh Richard Band, Bernard Herman, Manfredini, yeah. Carpenter. I mean, it's all of those things, but Richard Band is a great it's yeah, it's so full moon. Yeah. Very whimsical.
3: What were you gonna say? Uh I just wanna say I love the house that it was shot in. Yeah. Like how did you find yeah. that? I mean, you were strapped for time. Like you found like the most perfect house. <laughs>
2: well i guess I'll, that fell to me so i'll take this one as well uh we yeah one week of prep i ca- started calling airbnbs in los angeles and airbnb you know owners of airbnbs in los angeles or, or any rental platform in los angeles they know they're very wise to filmmakers renting you know people renting the place and suddenly shooting a film there and then they realize half their shit is damaged but i found a a, a property on on airbnb and this guy was um okay with us shooting there <laughs> and and uh was totally cool with it and and we were upfront with him i was very honest with him you know and i said we're going to uh we're going to be shooting a movie but we'll be, it's a very small crew we won't you know we'll be very careful he's like yeah that's cool that's great um Flash forward to the day before we start shooting. So I found that place about five days before the shoot started. Flash forward to the day before shooting. I get a phone call from the guy and he says, Hey, I just, I just thought I'd tell you, um, still cool. If you shoot here, it's all good. We, uh, are going to be jackhammering the sidewalk on Tuesday. And I said, Oh shit. Uh, we can't shoot there. Now he very Kindly refunded me. We did not shoot there, but I suddenly had to find the place. And this was noon the day before we started. Oh we started at eight a.m. the next day. Oh yeah. my
0: god!
2: <laughs> it's a heart. is my biggest heart attack on the whole movie was this. So I just was sitting in my car, sweating, terrified that we we're gonna have to shoot this whole movie in like my apartment or Mike's apartment, <laughs> and. And then it hit me, my buddy Rob, who, had, who I hadn't talked to in a while, had just bought a fixer-upper that he'd finished renovating in Mid-City, kind of on the border of Mid-City and Koreatown. Huge, you know, really nice craftsman house. Like you said, Lauren, it's a really pretty place. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And uh, I called him and I said, hey, Rob. <laughs> And, you know, I know you said you never wanted anyone to shoot a movie in your new house. <laughs> he also works in production. He was like, hey, I just, you know, I'm tired of people shooting where I live I, I, this place. No one's going to shoot here. So I, said, I know you don't want anyone to shoot in your house, but we, I'm really desperate and I need a place to shoot a movie. It's very, again, just like I told the other guy, very small, very uh, small crew, small cast. It'll, and we're only shooting for, for four days. And Rob goes, oh, I hear that sigh. And he goes, oh, OK, uh, when, do, when do you start? And I went, well, <laughs> <laughs> in a few hours, <laughs> 8 a.m. tomorrow. And Rob, Rob goes, what? <laughs> and, then, and then he, he, I, I you know, we had a little money for a location fee. I said, I could pay you a little bit. And he said, oh, OK, OK. And I was like, oh, my God, I owe you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, And I promise, again, nobody, small crew, nothing crazy. Next morning, in we come with barrels of blood and a (laughs)
0: fence.
2: He was very kind uh, to let us do that. And we were respectful and we got through it without any any serious I would say any serious damage about six months after we shot he called me I got a photo a text a photo text from him with this little red dot on a wall and he said look there's blood on the wall oh my god the tiniest (laughs) thing but um yeah that was that was it uh lauren that's how we got the location wow that's an incredible story the boo crew will be right back
5: a world famous scientist greatest living master of the occult has mysteriously vanished. In his place, a huge and fearsome prehistoric monster suddenly appears. Ah! What happened to Dr. Waterman? Only one man last to see him alive knows. And now he finds himself in deadly peril. Ah! The weird, the unbelievable, the supernatural come alive before your very eyes in Equinox. The invisible barrier between good and evil, between light and the forces of darkness, what is the secret of the thousand year old book? See four teenage boys and girls fight a devil cult for their lives, their sanity, their eternal souls in Equinox, in supernatural color, Equinox.
1: was the reason behind and i'm sure you get this all the time behind naming it as a as a sequel it, it, it has some you know th- similar thematic aspects i guess to that 2015 film but other than that you know i i like it because instantly naming something a part two i right. instantly feel like there's a fun pulpy quality to it you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, beyond that what did you what was your idea behind it
4: i mean oddly enough that was kind of the only mandate we really had was at least for in JD's mind was that he wanted this challenge film to be called dementia part two. So for me, the only way to get around that then was going to be just, you know, completely swapping the tone out from the first one, which is sort of a, you know, pretty straightforward thriller. Uh, so if we're going to do this and it's going to be called dementia part two, we have to shoot something that we know is feeds in part to part of the joke about it. I mean, it's like, um, Simon, last night we did this Q and a with Simon Barrett said, this is like an in joke for eight people. So, (laughs) which is true. Nobody cares about the in joke of it, but it just makes us laugh to think of the idea that we're making this sequel to a pretty, little scene movie to begin with like there's no nobody's clamoring for a dementia part two uh, but we just thought it was fun to take this idea and just twist it into this really ridiculous kind of gore comedy so yeah
3: so were there any things that you guys had to consider because it was filmed black and white like colors like did certain colors not show up or did certain colors show up so well that you wanted to stick with those how does that work
4: i mean we had well we went with the old uh psycho uh hershey syrup blood so that was that was fun <laughs> uh some some things i mean to me it it lent itself to some of the things like the black bile and stuff like that it just looks a little bit more to me sort of revolting and um mysterious, I guess, in black and white, because it just looks like this putrid, gross thing that's spilling out of her mouth. But um in terms of that, I mean I in terms of like a wardrobe and all that stuff, I think it was really just um just in the sense of the of going with the with the goo felt nice and black and white because it just went right to black. There's no, you know, odd shades of red or anything like that with the blood. But also with just the lighting, it allowed us to use any color temperature light we wanted. I mean, we only had a handful of lights. I think we had four lights on set and and not all of them were able to do daylight and, you know, tungsten colors. And as soon as you put gels on them, you're knocking your light output down by a stop. So uh, we were able to just punch everything we could possibly punch through windows And, you know, allow us just to have that, have that freedom to, you know, try to create some sort of, I mean, it's a daylight horror movie, but try to create any sense of um, light and shadow.
1: Got it. Leo, you had a question, man. Jump in.
2: Yeah, both you and uh, Matt and uh, Suzanne Voss are fantastic in this movie. She plays a character with so much randomness (laughs) at times, funny, uh, serious, and then terrifying. How much did you guys get to improvise? Uh, A decent amount. I I think the script we ended up with, because the process was so quick, uh, was about 54 pages long. So we definitely needed to fill in, you know, add some runtime. And the movie itself is still quite short. It's an hour and seven minutes. Um, But we allowed we really approached this whole thing with collaboration in mind. And Suzanne is an extremely collaborative actor. And uh, there were a lot of beats where we felt like something more was needed and, and we added, we improvised some stuff. My, one of my favorites is one Suzanne did, actually, which is where she's, um, there's a scene where she's perf- killing somebody. She's digging into some, trying to avoid spoilers, but she's digging into
1: some. Uh, doing some intestinal work. yeah some
3: Some internal it's my favorite scene it's
2: my favorite scene yeah (laughs) because that a lot some of that is improvised that's a good example of uh suzanne i think the way it was written was the (laughs) excavate the intestinal excavation was kind of just that and um she added this whole beat of like uh noticing my character and Najara's character standing there looking at her. And then it she uh, switches back to regular Suzanne from her monster state. And she's sort of like embarrassed and ashamed at what she's done. And it's so funny. I mean, it's so like, she, it's such a, uh, yeah, it's such a, a great um, moment she came up with. So we certainly had, did have uh, some improvisation in there. Um, Graham also contributed a couple of my favorite ones uh, one of which is Suzanne was constantly filling her mouth with bile and, and blood as the creature when she's fully turning and there's a scene where she's talking and it's just the bile's running out of her mouth and she she's always asking new people who arrive to the house would you like some tea and she said that line with the stuff coming out of her mouth and it just sort of came out like oh, No, no one could possibly understand what she's saying. And we hadn't written a response to that. And Graham, without missing a beat, none of us knew he was going to do this. She goes, oh, 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 oh. and he goes, huh, no, I would not like any tea. <laughs> it was just like so funny. I mean, we, we, you know, Mike was, I think you can see the camera moving in the take because Mike was laughing. <laughs>
1: oh, man, all that, like all Graham's giver stuff is so fucking yeah. funny. And the way he looks yeah, is yeah. fucking funny too. Was yeah. it hard to keep it together for any of his stuff at all? Okay, that's oh, my <laughs> yeah, oh my I
4: god. Yeah, I mean for me just for me I had um kind of one man banding it but I generally had either handheld or the camera on a little small jib but uh we have so few takes that we really had no choice and some of the takes are kind of uh, one take wonders like the um the CPR scene <laughs> for instance we could only do that once yeah. And I remember it just turned out so perfectly for, for what we could have asked for in the situation. But then I'm looking at playback and I can see the camera jiggling. <laughs> and it's just so frustrating because it could only happen once. And I'm just sitting there laughing and I'm bumping the jib as I'm laughing. I don't know how noticeable it is. But for me, I see all of those instances. Like there's <laughs> that one with the CPR. And I don't know how well you remember, but there's a scene where um, Matt wakes up on the couch after his uh, little hallucinatory uh, drug trip there. And Suzanne looks ridiculous on the stairs and she's like, pss, pss. and Matt just wakes up on the like, this guy is taking a nap on her couch. This, this <laughs> zombie bile spewing woman is napping on her couch. <laughs> and I'm just shaking the camera. It's
2: in the movie, because yeah. we have no other takes to go to, in terms of gra yeah in terms of uh Graham' stuff, though, I will say as an actor, when he barges in the door and a basic just physically assaults me, which he was just grabbing me and throwing me around, I could not keep it together. I couldn't. Yeah. He has <laughs> some line that's like, uh you'll be wearing your ass as a hat and your testicles as spectacles, and yeah. <laughs>
4: Was that's that a line. Sh- I,
2: you wrote it? That's in this. Sh- I wrote that yeah. line. And when I heard it come out of his mouth, <laughs> I was like, well, that's a terrible line. But I also can't stop laughing because of a. Graham is saying it. <laughs> um, but he he, um, he was so slimy. I think he was his aim was to be like uh, like Dennis Franz in Psycho 2 or like Dennis Franz in any De Palma movie. He was right. trying to be so scuzzy. And it was so funny that yeah i it wasn't until about the third take and we really did not have much time for more than three takes on anything it wasn't until like take three i could remotely hold it together There's um, a few, and instances. then when you when you add to that that i didn't what'd you say mike
4: i was just gonna say there's a few instances in the movie where you can see that smile start to crack before you, yeah <laughs> before you dampen it yeah, like the, the scene where uh, she's putting, uh, she puts him in the jacket. She puts the wig over him. Yeah, and you just see the smile start to crack, and then she's then rubbing my lips. You, somehow you overpower it.
2: <laughs> Suzanne like put the wig on me. She's trying to dress me up like her dead husband, and she puts this <laughs> wig on me. And then she started, she started caressing my lips, and I was like, oh my god, what is? And I, the 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 character bega- the character began to disappear, and Matt Matt thinking about. What, what this is going to look like on screen began to take over and i just i i started to crack up and i i i think i edited that to the frame i got right up to where it's like nope i'm smiling you know like i got right i cut it right when i started to laugh That's the but
1: best um, how about yeah, you how about you doing that i mean the mouth-to-mouth scene how did you not fucking <laughs> oh, lose it how did you not throw up all over the place was that a prosthetic yeah. too or was it actually suzanne that was Suzanne. Whoa. We just had to do it. Not only was that Suzanne, that was
2: the first thing we shot.
4: No. Dude,
0: you are lying.
2: <laughs> what? Well, <laughs> it, it had to be the first thing we shot because of the, we were shooting room to stick to schedule and stay on time. We would shoot out a room. We went room by room. Uh, so we did not shoot it in order. We shot room to room and we started with that room and it seemed like the best, option was to start with that scene. And thank God, Suzanne and I know each other. We'd acted together before in uh, contracted phase two. And, uh, and Mike had done a short with her called the salesman, which is kind of a, a tonal s- sister to this movie. It's yeah. very in tone. So, you know, so I'd known Suzanne for a while. So it, luckily the trust was there and we just had to check in with each other. Be like, are you okay? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, I'm okay. And then, slather you know, slathered her mouth up with oatmeal and ultra slime and i think coffee cream <laughs> just all around her mouth and then and then it was just like i i, I was i think when we started shooting the scene i or when we were about to shoot it i i was beginning to get giddy i was like this is so funny this is so ridiculous but then when we were actually doing it i was like i think i was more concerned with her comfort level and just making it work that it erased uh th- the uh humor that i was thinking about it possibly the-, the the humor that it might engender in the
3: audience talking about humor who has the photograph of harold that's on the mantle where is that <laughs>
2: that's mike's <laughs> <laughs>
4: it's amazing yeah, so that, uh, that is like the only real connection with dementia one, because that's, um, that's Rafi, one of the young boulder light producers in, uh, the bald cap and all that stuff. But he was actually in going to be in dementia one and he was going to be an extra in the hospital. He was just going to roll by Gene Jones's door and his nurse who was, uh, Justin, um, Justin Benson, his nurse stopped. And he, Rafi had one line and it was going to be hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but It was so stupid. Rafi insisted on it. I was like, this is not going to work, but okay. I mean, yeah, let's do one shot of this. See if it see what happens. He does it. He does his moan pushes on through. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to make the movie. And so it ended up cutting it. Rafi was hurt. And so come time for dementia too. I found that still that I had taken of him and <laughs> had blown it up into an eight by 10 and put it in a frame and we put it on the mantle and that was going to be Harold. And it was just going to be a little joke at first for Rafi to see when we eventually screened it at Sin Apocalypse. But then, then we thought it was so funny that we decided to have Rafi actually just get into the old man makeup again. And then we did that nightmare uh, sequence where he pulls the, Pulls that's a great there.
1: scene too just yeah. having him in the back sitting in the in, in the forest there or whatever from yeah, a distance the, terrifying
4: yeah. like magically pushing his robe around <laughs> yeah that, that
2: day we shot that too We it was just Mike and I and a assistant and Rafi and we got a uh, mayor uh, or makeup of one of our makeup effects people to put him in that old makeup we go to the park and we're just st- i mean everything in this movie is stolen <laughs> you know no permits so we go to the park and uh, had him walk out in that field and this wind whipped up and so we're in the trees and the you know silhouettes of the branches are framing the field and he's like you said he's standing way out there gown blowing in the breeze and it is so creepy looking he's like go and like go further go go way out there. It's just so creepy. It looks so amazing. He's like, oh, okay. And this is our executive producer. We're doing this. Too. <laughs> like, go, get, go way out there. And then, and then all, and then we, we start rolling and I'm um, like, just stay simple, completely motionless and kind of hold your arms out. And he's like, okay can i come back now there's a there's a family having a picnic over here and i think they <laughs> <laughs> were like okay come on back but he was he was like he he was very uncomfortable being in the in the middle wide open field with people around in the park yeah matt on, on being in front of the camera were you able to self-direct or were all your scenes left at the mic's direction for your character usually left up to Mike's direction. We were moving so fast that I would feel guilty if I watched playback on the monitor to see how my performance looked. I think that the, so yeah, to, the basic answer is Mike was my director in those scenes and I had to trust him, but we, you know, we have a, we've worked together a lot and I trust his judgment uh, more than my own in in many cases, but also this was moving so fast that I think there was so much going on that I, I just sort of, I think I just sort of let go and just did whatever came out of my mouth and whatever I did. And I think it lent itself to kind of a certain kind of naturalism, the stress of having to make the movie so fast fed into Wendell's, my character's stress. So I think that um, I sort of let that take hold and just ran with it. Wendell Miska.
1: Was that a yeah. Brad Miska reference right from the beginning?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. That was. Uh, I think that was JD's idea. Our producer, JD Lipschitz. And we
1: were like, yeah, sure. Great. I love Brad. Let's. That's <laughs> awesome. Homage Brad. Then you got to name <laughs> the squirrel like Tom Owen or whatever, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. There's the name.
1: <laughs> so There's I don't recall name. ever. Do we find out exactly what landed Wendell in jail? Do we know? No. <laughs>
4: do you no. guys
2: know?
1: No, I mean, I think it's
2: probably uh, clearly I did my character work on this. No, I (laughs) I, I think uh, I think he just I don't think he did anything wrong is my guess. I think he got roped into something or was in the wrong place at the wrong time and landed in jail, even though probably somebody else did. the.
4: (laughs) That's that's like Wendell's M.O. Wrong place, wrong time. Yes, (laughs) exactly. What was the most uh, challenging scene to shoot? I would, I mean, for me, I think I would say just probably that first stuff, just because it was um, meaning the CPR and all that stuff going into that room. Um, Mm -hmm. If for no other reason, it was the first day. And that was also a day we didn't have a sound person. So we had a friend try to, you know, try to fill in for that role for the day. And, you know, just the idea of, okay, we have, we have five days or four days. Initially we have to nail like, 15 pages a day. Here we go. And, you know, we start off with this CPR scene, all this hard stuff. I think for me, it was like that stuff, just kind of getting settled into the rhythm and figuring out how this is going to work with our parameters. We set up this idea that we were going to do just like three takes, three shots of a scene, limit our coverage in that sense, and then only have three takes per shot. So it was just kind of finding our footing in terms of that and finding that method and trying to ease into that system. Because, you know, film shoots generally move so incredibly slowly that trying to work into this opposite manner was was going to be a challenge and going to be, I think, the fun part of the challenge. So for me, it was just that first day. What about you, Matt?
2: The first one that came up in my head was when we were shooting. I think it was the last thing we shot, which was the um, which is interesting because you said the first thing, the last thing I was so tired. Um, I couldn't figure out, you know, one of the things you try to do when you're moving this quickly is you're you're just trying to make sure you're going to have cuts, not bump in the edit. That one shot will lead to the next. And I think when we were shooting the last scene. Which was, I believe, the weapons montage It was when Najara and I were getting all the weapons together before we before we discover. Yeah, before we discover parts of Old Harold in the fridge and there was this shot. I don't know if you remember this, Mike, but I could not figure out how we were going to go from Najara finding the golf club to the refrigerator. Yeah. And I and you were like we just cut to the refrigerator and I was like okay, you can't do that And I was like you can't do that And I was like you gotta we gotta open up some kitchen drawers I mean I was just I was like a lunatic in that moment I, I, I was in my mind and I was so tired and I was like we gotta do a thing where we put the camera on a Dana dolly and go over some drawers and open them. Like we're looking for stuff. And Mike was looking at me like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> we don't need that. We don't need that. And I, I, I was so frustrated. I was like, I, I just, I, I was I like, a petulant.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> and the, last thing. <laughs> and the last thing.
2: Yeah. I quit. But I was, I was like a, there was the one moment I think during the shoot where I was just sort of a petulant child and I went, all right, fine, we'll do it your way. And then it cut, it cut perfectly. It was fine. It was fine. It was just because from Najara with the golf club to me going, oh, I found something in the fridge. It was fine. <laughs> yeah, it was fine.
3: So are there any sequel ideas? Dementia 3. I think we should do one in 3D personally. Oh, that'd be
1: nice. I like that.
4: 3D Ooh. and all about the squirrel.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tom Owen.
4: <laughs> Tom Owen. Yeah.
1: Three, yeah. Dementia
2: 3D. Tom mm-hmm. Owen. Yeah, it should just take place in the forest with the with the squirrels, you know.
1: But is there any 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 more adventures of Wendell?
2: No plans yet. I mean, we've joked around about what it could be. I think if we did it yeah. we want to do kind of how 2 was such a departure from 1, it, it would be fun to do something and also wildly different. Although I really did enjoy the comedic aspects. So I think it'd be fun to do something uh buoyant again.
4: I mean, I think it would it would have to have the same the same sort of goofball tone, but just yeah. kind of take on like some other fun, fun genre element, whether it's like a heist kind of something or whatever, just spitballing. I don't know, but
0: yeah, but, heist uh, would be but good.
4: keeping the um, what made this fun, which would be the goofy nature. I love the heist.
1: That'd be awesome. Or in space. Always in space. (laughs) (laughs) Wendell in space. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up here, so you guys are both involved in Joe Begis' Bliss, right? In 2019. And that was just such a game, another game changing film in in look and tone as well. And the cinematography is just out of control. It's next level. How did that experience change you guys?
4: Uh, Well, for me, I hadn't um, known Joe prior to that i met him i mean i'd met him here and there but hadn't really had too uh lengthy of uh, exchanges with him but um when we screened dementia 2 at chattanooga he was there um and we got to hang out then and talk a little bit about bliss and it was going to be his um first time working with film and i had shot some film recently and i think that's kind of what uh what we started talking about initially was approaching 16 millimeter, and and how to um, get sort of the crazy things that that are in Joe's mind um, with that. Because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of tech stuff happening in there. I mean, there's a lot of lighting cues. There's a lot of strobes. There's a lot of pulsing. There's 360 camera. Uh, movements a lot of crazy handheld joe likes to operate the handheld stuff so it's just kind of about figuring out how to how to balance all these crazy ideas he's got in his head how to make them actually possible because sometimes joe will write you know things that are like uh, uh, 360 and strobing and you know a hurricane comes through town and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the Wicked Witch is, you know, we see your feet under the building. And, but it's just kind of wrangling all those things into a way that can make it cohesive and possible. And that was kind of the reward for me personally. It was like bringing all that in uh, in an achievable way, I think. And uh, yeah, working with Joe for the first time, that was great. I mean, the, that set was Insane because it was uh I think like a hundred and fifteen degree heat wave over the course of this. It was an uncondition uh, generally an un- air conditioned um loft in downtown LA. We were shooting at super scuzzy part of town. Yeah. It was uh, like the goal yeah. was to pick places with no AC. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. <torture> yeah. Yourself. <laughs> so it'd be a full day of a hundred and fifty we were shooting overnights too, and that's super exhausting, but you know, it'd be a hundred and fifteen degree day. And we'd arrive at this waft that felt like it was 130 degrees. And, uh, you know, we just crack the windows, have it, you know, try to get it down as much as possible and just manage our way through the night with this uh, extreme temp. And our we had one uh, camera assistant, camera loader, and he's like trying to load mag uh, magazines in the uh, 115 degrees. And it's just like inside the loading tent, it's you know probably 140 degrees and super humid and film slipping off your hands and it was it was a uh it was a tough element to deal with but it was super fun shoot um obviously a lot of crazy things to experiment with and that's what's great about joe is he likes to experiment with a lot of the um i don't want to say technology in the sense of like new technology he he's very much into the um you know the more vintage stuff and sort of a mix bringing a mixture of like the Gaspar Noé sort of revolving camera stuff with like the Abel Ferrara kind of grittier thing. It's
1: so beautiful, and Matt, you were you were a yeah. part of that circus as well. How did what did you take away from that energy, man?
2: Yeah, I think the thing that I if I that I took away or that I learned was definitely ma- the maximization of every of everything you have at your fingertips. Cause that was a, a, a pretty low budget movie. And we were shooting on film, which eats up a lot more of the budget than if you were shooting on uh, uh, digitally. But I think what I took, what I was very much, I was a, I had a role in it that ended up getting cut because it just, it, the scene just wasn't needed. The movie was better for it, but I also was, I was mainly a co-producer on it and I was working very closely, closely with Josh Ether who was the producer and editor on the film and working with Josh, we had to come up with, and Mike was a big part of these discussions too, is coming up with ways to make all of those wild things that Joe would write in the script feasible and work with what we had and also just concentrate all, all of that into the scene and make it really come to life. So I think, you know, I, in the stuff I've produced in the past and, I've known Joe for a long time and I had acted in a movie he made called the mind's eye. So I know how he thinks and how he works. And I have a, a decent idea of what his aesthetic is. I think <laughs> it's, I can never fully get in his head, but I know, I think we've all gotten used to how to e- sort of execute it, but I came away from bliss. Th- you know, I went in thinking, I'm a pretty efficient producer and I'm pretty good at maximizing the potential of limited resources and I came away with an entirely different new appreciation from those guys because they are breathe cinema and the elements of it Josh and you know Josh is such a great editor too just from from beginning to end I think I learned new techniques of how to maximize limited resources and what you have you know I mean there was things like I don't know if you remember in that movie the um that we shot at this bar downtown, this really cool venue called the Five Star Bar, which is a really grungy spot uh, in downtown Los Angeles that the bands play all the time. It's, it's a really cool, really cool bar. And we couldn't afford, I, we couldn't really afford to rent it outright, but the Josh came up with a scheme to hire a band We knew uh, one of the musicians in it, Brian Sowell, and we hired this band to play it. And as long as we had them play like it was a real show and we could let the public in and they would pay to see the show and buy drinks, that would offset the cost. It would bring people in and offset the cost. But we had to just put up signs and say, hey, you're going to be in a movie. But like that kind of thinking, like that you you come away, you know, with that. And uh, that was a wild night. (laughs) i
0: can't even Um, imagine yeah
2: you know who knows who we didn't know who was gonna wander in there and it it was an interesting crowd of of our friends and uh whoever yeah whoever right (laughs) (laughs) they were on camera but that that kind of thinking is what i came away with you know Ah, oh, it's magic,
1: guys. All right, well, our thirty minutes has turned into an hour. We are so sorry. Oh we God. keep you hanging, man. No, we just we is... love talking to you, man. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, that said, we'll we'll let you go. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. But again, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thanks for making this movie. Oh, we fucking loved it, so and we good. just we just thank can't you. wait to see what's next from you guys, man. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thanks for having us on. This
2: was yeah. a blast. Uh, I love the podcast, so this was a a blast talking to you. This is a, a real
1: pleasure. Thanks oh so man, we appreciate it so yeah. much. We can't wait to do it in person oh, too. And for next one you guys come over. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Awesome guys. All right, have a great weekend. We'll see ya. All right, you, you too. too. Thank Bye. you. Take care. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 233. Special thanks to our guests, Mike Teston and Matt Mercer. At time of release, their new film, Dementia Part 2, is now playing in limited theaters and arriving on DVD and VOD June 1st. A presentation of Bloody Disgusting and Dark Star Pictures. Production tracks provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at dot Crew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand. And Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand. Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye